the return of the midweeks. Hello, friends. Welcome to the midweeks. We're going to be starting off the book of 1 Samuel, of the twin books, 1 and 2 Samuel. As you were with us last time, we talked about the, how the main focuses of this book are going to be seeing it through the lens of the formation of the kingdom, followed by uh, seeing it as the beginning of the reigns of Israel's first couple of kings, as well as looking at character studies and how the human heart is revealed through what happens in this book. But the most important part is to see the ways of God in the world as the sovereign Lord ruling over the nations, as well as the God of every heart who is opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble and leading the world through faith in people's hearts. So I'm going to read a few verses and then I'll just make comments as we go. And we're going to get through the entire first chapter this time. And so if you want to familiarize yourself with it before I get going, you're welcome to do that. Otherwise, you can just listen along. For Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathiam, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, a Nephrathite. He had two wives, and the names of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Okay, we can stop there. So we're introduced, first of all, to a man named Elkanah, who doesn't have a huge role to play in the story overall, but... This is where the introduction happens. And this isn't an introduction of the family of the first king or even the second king. It's actually the introduction of the family of Israel's last prophet, Judge. This is the last judge of Israel. His name's Samuel, and he's going to be responsible for initiating the kingdom. And so we're going to start this book off with his very important life. And we're introduced to his father, Elkanah, and we're given multiple layers of uh, genealogy. Elkanah's father is Jeroham, Elihu, Tohu, and Zaph from the region of Ephrathite, or from the tribe or um of Eph- he was an Ephrathite. And so to have that many layers of genealogy, there's four layers behind, is usually a sign of great honor to go back that far in history. That's usually a, a sign saying this is an important person. This is somebody who scripture wants to honor by going back that many generations. And so that's a good reminder of whatever's going on with Elkanah. We're meant to see his life as one to honor especially because he's the father of Samuel, but also because his mother's, uh, Samuel's mother's also amazing. But this is the introduction. It's meant to be an honoring introduction. Verse two, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name was the other, of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So here's the setup. You have, um, it's a bigamous family. Or it's a, a polygamous family. There's two wives. In ancient Israel, this was not uncommon. In scripture, it's never really said to be a great thing, but it is something that God works through to have um, multiple wives. And so for us as New Testament believers, we know that this isn't God's best. And when Jesus came, he really said that this is not a viable option for Christians anymore. You're meant to have one wife, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, and anything beyond that's no good. And don't go there. And in the New Testament, the apostles excluded 
anyone who has more than one wife from eldership. So you can't be a leader of the church if you have more than one wife, which um, would ex- exclude these guys who want to be prominent by, you know, they're probably rich. It's, it's not cheap to have large families and multiple spouses. And so they're probably wealthy, important people in in their cities, but they couldn't be prominent people in the church. And so that was part of how um, Christianity wrecked polygamy in human history, because polygamy has been very common throughout the world, in throughout human history. Like everything that's less than God's best, it's common throughout all peoples in all places. But Christianity really um, undercuts and kind of destroys polygamy everywhere it goes because of Jesus's teaching and because of um, the exclusion of that kind of family life from leadership, top leadership in the church. Anyhow, uh, Hannah's probably the first wife, and that's why she's named first, but she doesn't have children. So we don't know here if um, Elkanah married Hannah and then after some years noticed that she wasn't having children, so had a second wife in order to see if he could have children by her or if he married them um, closer next to each other. But one has children, one doesn't. And right away, we should be hearing an echo of Rachel and Leah from this story. A husband who's got two wives and one has children and one doesn't have children. And you're kind of expecting right off the bat for there to be trouble because of this. And then if you expect that, you're not disappointed. Verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. So before the Ark of the Lord was brought up to Jerusalem in the time of David, which is also another important event in this story, it existed at Shiloh during the time of the judges. And so here's the Levitical priest um, doing his role there, Eli, and he's got two sons, and their family's going to be important, but they're not the focus of this chapter. But you're introduced to Elkanah as a man who is a regular worshiper and a regular sacrificer, and this really does count in Elkanah's favor. Um, What we learn about him, speaking of character studies, is he was a man who was a consistent worshiper and consistently brought his family to worship the Lord. And this is kind of his great grace and his great example in the book. Even if you wanted to like drag him through the mud for the polygamy, which isn't great, at all. Um, He was a man who is presented as a true, faithful, lifelong worshiper, and he makes the regular travel to the Lord's presence, to the tabernacle at Shiloh to worship. And we're going to learn from the next chapters that that wasn't always a pleasant event because of Eli's sons um, being greedy and threatening to the worshipers and abusing the women who worked at the tabernacle. It wasn't like the best church ever, and it wasn't even the high point of uh, worship at the tabernacle. It was very corrupt, but even though it was corrupt, Elkanah brought his family to truly worship the Lord there, and so this really does count in his favor, and it does teach us about God's pleasure in persistent, faithful worship of him. Verse 4, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Okay, so we can stop there because we've pretty much found out everything about Penina that we're going to find out in this story. 
Elkanah comes and he, he must have quite a sacrifice because he's got portions for his large family. And Penina has sons and daughters. So they've been married for a while up to this point. This is their regular life. Penina keeps having kids every year. She has another kid to bring to this worship thing. And every year Hannah still doesn't have another king, a kid or child to bring to worship the Lord. But what Elkanah does is because, again, he's going to appear in a second. We're going to see that he's not not wonderful with his wives, obviously, but he is trying because he's going to give Hannah some kind of honor and compensation for the fact that she doesn't have any children. He's going to show his love for her and honor her by giving her a double portion of the sacrifice, but even that, you know, it's probably cold comfort. But you might remember back at the end of Genesis when the brothers go to see Joseph, who's reigning over um, Egypt. And in order to show honor to Joseph as his blood brother, even though they don't know he's, he's Joseph yet, he gives Benjamin a double portion, which is a sign of honor here. And so that same kind of thing of a double portion of honor to show love, to show um, thoughtfulness is happening for Hannah. Elkanah's doing what he can. Um, but one of the things he's not doing here is it, it doesn't say that he's praying for his wife, which is a bit of an omission because in Genesis, he would have known the stories about how the patriarchs had prayed for their barren wives, um, especially Isaac, who prayed for like 20 years for uh, Rebecca to be able to conceive, but it doesn't talk about Elkanah praying. And so that's an omission. But what do we learn about Penina? Um, Penina is an unbelieving woman. This is kind of what you learn about her because she has these children. She's the uh, one of two wives, she has all these children, and instead of having pity or mercy on the barren one, she um, provokes her. So she feels um, threatened, she feels like she's in competition with Hannah, and may maybe Elkanah does not treat her well, we don't know, but she is um, responds to this situation with personal pride because of her ability to have kids, and she vexes her opponent um, in order to kind of grieve her and it says because the Lord closed her room so she has is taking shots at Hannah because of her barrenness so she's trying to really hit her while she's down and one of the ways we know that she's got pride here she's one of these people that the Lord wants to lower down because of her pride and that she's also functioning unbelief is because Penina is an Israelite so she is a descendant of Abraham and Sarah, she's a descendant of Isaac and Rebecca, and she is a relative, whether a physical direct descendant or part of the family line of Jacob and Rachel. And so she knows from her family history that God has pity on the barren woman and that he sides with her and remembers her. And so even though her faith should say, hey, even though I've got the kids, I should know that God has mercy on the barren woman. She's not having mercy on the barren woman. And so this is a good insight into faith and unbelief. Even though Penina is physically in the midst of the story of the people of God, she doesn't see herself as someone who is in the middle of the story of the people of God. But faith does see yourself as a part of God's story in the world. Faith sees your life as part of the story of God's glory that he's writing in human history. And you see yourself as, you can look at your life and see your life as an echo of previous lives of faith that have happened, that God has worked with. But Penina doesn't see that. 
she doesn't see herself as a Leah. She doesn't see herself as a Hagar. And she doesn't see the potential of God's mercy coming to her rival and so humbles herself. Instead, she provokes and attacks her rival. Now, one of the things I said is we're going to look at the way God rules through the world. And in verse 5 and 6, it says about Hannah in both these places that the Lord has closed her womb. And these are verses about God's sovereignty and his providence. And it's not that um, Elkanah says, the Lord's closed your womb and God's in heaven, so no, I haven't. And it's not like Penina says, God's closed your womb and God is saying, no, I haven't. These are the author's words. These are the prophet's words. This is the perspective of God. Under his sovereignty, he has not enabled or allowed Hannah up to this point to have a child. And of course, this would be terribly painful for, in some sense, to, to have someone say that, as obviously it was with Penina's provoking. But you can see that Hannah does embrace this kind of providence because she is going to go in a minute and go and pray to the Lord and seek him as the one who can change her situation. But when you're reading stories of the Old Testament, you're supposed to say, when something's said, who's saying it? If a person is saying it, it might be true, but it also might not be true. It might be revealing their heart or showing that their perspective. But when the author is saying it, those words are the very words of God. They're God's perspective. So in verse 5 and 6, when it says that God is willing to take responsibility for the fact that Hannah hasn't had a child yet over all these years, that is God saying, yeah, I I." would take responsibility for this. And God's not afraid to take responsibility for that, even though it's painful. And you know what? He's not afraid to also give grace to Hannah when she's about to humble herself. Okay, let's go to verse seven. So it went on year by year. So it's just trying to let you know, this is a constant thing. This one little episode about the food and the provoking, this is Hannah's life. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? And am I not more to you than ten sons? And so here we have, this is kind of the second to last thing we'll get from Elkanah. And you can, he's bright enough to know that there's something wrong. And he's bright enough to, I think he probably gets what the problem is, but he doesn't know how to help. And one of the things here is he just says, aren't I great? Aren't I more to you than 10 sons? But of course, any thinking woman would say, yeah, but you married this woman who's making my life miserable. So Elkanah is not, doesn't really have the right to say, aren't I enough for you? And it's a bit of a loss that Elkanah says, aren't I enough for you? Instead of going to pray with his wife, that would have probably been the best. So in verse nine, after they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to you all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So, there's some movement here. So Hannah arises from the table. That's where the scene has been. And it switches to the scene of Eli sitting at the doorpost of the temple or of the tabernacle there. And so with this movement to Eli, now we're kind of seeing through Eli's in the scene and we're hearing Anna's 
heart prayer. We're not told yet that she's doing it quietly, but we're hearing the prayer of her heart as she's praying in her distress. And it's this beautiful moment where she's saying, I am so hungry to give life that God, if you'll let me produce life and take away this pain I am I'm in for not being able to bring forth the life of the son, I will give it back to you. And she even pledges this child as a Nazarite saying, um, no razor shall go on his head. This is part of a Nazarite vow from the book of Numbers, a special vow where people could especially dedicate themselves to the Lord by not shaving their head and not eating any wine or drinking any wine, sorry, and not touching any dead bodies. And so she is saying, um, let me be your servant. Let me be used by you, and I will give you this child back. And so she's praying from the distress of her heart. And let me just note here how faith and prayer are this, like, go so hand in hand, hand in glove in this moment. How do you know that Hannah is a woman of faith that is worthy of giving birth to Israel's last judge, who is going to be a true prophet and one of the great prophets, and who is going to initiate the kingdom of, of Israel, or Israel as a kingdom, and is going to be the one who anoints the great King David. She is a woman who has turned to the Lord in prayer. Her faith expresses itself through prayer, and this is what we know about Hannah. So we already know she's a hero of the faith. She's a woman to be emulated. In her distress, she goes to the Lord, and she goes to pray with honesty, desperation, with a pure heart and an open heart and a heart poured out before the Lord, willing to not, and 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 almost even forsaking the potential for just selfishness. She's not just saying, give me a kid. She says, let me be used by you to bring forth even a profoundly dedicated servant to you. I will give him back to you through this vow. Okay, so, and then we're going to meet Eli just briefly. We're going to deal, I think I want to deal with Eli next time, but Eli misunderstands what's going on. Verse 12, and as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth and Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit and I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant you your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. All right, so what's going on here? So we're getting our first little glimpse into the spiritual state of Israel at the beginning of Samuel, because Eli's there as the high priest, but he can't tell a woman who is praying from the heart from a woman who's drunk. So number one bad sign is he actually expects a drunk woman to be at the tabernacle, which isn't a good sign. Like it's like on Sunday morning, every once in a while, someone will come in drunk, but I'm always surprised when it happens. I don't assume people are coming to church drunk. 
But here's Eli, not surprised if a woman comes to the temple and she's drunk. So that's not good. To kind of go there first, that's not a good sign. And then also to not be able to recognize that Hannah is praying from her distress, that's not a good sign as well. And we're beginning to see the spiritual bankruptcy that Israel is in right now and their great need for a new judge to arise. And so Hannah um, corrects the high priest, and it's really good. This is another sign of her faith and her humble heart. She's accused of being drunk, even though she's praying. And many people would be so offended and attack if you're praying and someone accuses you of being drunk. There's a great moment there to be offended and to respond in offense. But instead, she just is so humble. She corrects him and just says, oh, don't think poorly of me. I'm so vexed. I'm praying to the Lord. And so Eli responds by saying, okay, go in peace. And may God grant your prayer. And God honors the position of priest that Eli is and fulfills this, like by the mercies alone of God, Eli is speaking the the answer to Hannah's prayers. God's going to give you what you ask. And Hannah, by humble faith, accepts it. After saying, may God answer your petition, she says, let your servant find favor in your eyes. So she's humbly receiving this blessing, even from a man who just so misunderstood her. And you know what? You and I, we hate to be misunderstood. Don't you hate to be misunderstood? So she's so deeply misunderstood, the exact opposite of what's going on in her heart. And when he says, okay, may God bless you, she accepts and says, and calls herself the servant of Eli and goes on her way and puts away her sadness and eats. So she's humble, She's expressing her faith through true prayer. She expresses her humility and faith through accepting the blessing of Eli. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house. And Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. All right, so this is awesome. So they go away. Um, it's a miracle conception, but it's accomplished in the usual ways. Um, and there's this great line, the Lord remembered her. And this is a, a way of talking. It just means um, it's not like God forgot her before and now remembers, like she slipped his mind and now she remember, he remember, she, sorry, God remembers again. It's a way of saying God's decided that now is the time to act. He's seen her faith. Um, he's had a plan, he's known what's going on, and now that she's coming, this time when she prays, and I doubt it's the first time she prays, but this moment where she went in her anguish and Eli pronounced the blessing, God said, now is the day that I am going to answer your prayer. And Hannah conceives, and she bears a son just like she asked for, and she called his name Samuel, which means herd of God. Shemuel means the herd of God. And she says, I've asked for him from the Lord. And so she, again, just to kind of cap off her faith, she names him, God answered my prayer, essentially. So she so knows that this wasn't an accident. This is a miracle of God. It's a providential act of the sovereign God of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so she names her son, essentially answered prayer from God. 
And so there we go. You know, I promised us the whole chapter, but time's getting away. So let's stop there at verse 20. We'll pick up verse 21 next time. But you can see what we're doing here. We've looked at Elkanah and what we see from Elkanah. He's a faithful worshiper, but doesn't quite understand his wife and isn't praying for her that we know about. We see Panina, who is in a hard spot. She's blessed with all these kids, but she's not the more favored wife, and she responds with unbelief and a bitter, vexatious soul. And we see Hannah, who's kind of more loved by her husband, but that's no substitute for seeking the Lord powerfully for her heart's desire in faith. And so she humbles herself, she expresses her faith, and we see the God of the Bible act in history and take this woman who's humble and exalts her. So that's what's going on. All right. Lord be with each one of you. God bless you and encourage you with these stories. And we'll see you next time here.